Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in any of Walter's music. And thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM. We really do appreciate it. Couldn't do these shows without you, Devine. Thanks again. Hats off to you. And if any of you listening would like to know more about community radio, WPVM-FM.org. Good place to look, good place to start. If you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. My website is jamesnave.com. You can find all about the things that I'm up to. You can also join me on, on Saturday morning with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, for a Zoom call that we've been doing for the last year called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week Sessions. We gather with writers and work for an hour. We write for 10 minutes. We talk about the creative process, and then we read our work. If you'd like to join us, imaginativestorm.com. The door is always open. We would love to have you, imaginativestorm.com. And today, I have Walter Parks. I mentioned Walter's name earlier. Walter Parks provides the theme song for this show, and Walter and I have been friends for many, many years. And today, I'm at Walter's house, his home, in his, actually in his studio, in his basement, in St. Louis, Missouri. I drove from Taos, New Mexico, uh, 900 miles to Walter's house. I'm on my way to Asheville for the LEAF uh, retreat, the LEAF Global Arts Retreat. And so I often try to make a stop to see Walt because we've been friends for years. And as I said, Walter provides our theme song. You got it. Walter's a singer-songwriter. Walter's also a bit of a renaissance man because he can do many things. Build furniture. He can build houses. He makes music. He gives terrific performances all over the country, and he also collects guitars. Our subject today is how do you connect with the guitar? So Walter Parks, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Navi, thanks for having me. It's always uh, great to spend time with you, regardless of if it's here in the flesh in my dining room or workshop, or sometimes maybe you keep me awake on the road. And not only do you provide that service when I'm listening to your podcast, you inspire me after I've survived and uh, and arrived at my destination. So thank you very much. Here we are in the destination in, in your, your studio. So yesterday you and I were down here and you picked up a couple of the guitars and you started to talk about the, the subtleties and the nuances of one guitar compared to another, the vintage guitars you've been collecting all your life. It's clearly a passion for you. Yeah. You have a great collection of guitars and I thought what better thing to do for a radio show than to have you just tell us about vintage guitars, how you connected, what it's all about. Fill us in on this subject. Well, I got into vintage guitars when I was a kid because we didn't really think of them as vintage guitars at the time. The only guitars that were accessible to me when I was 12 years old and started playing, 13 maybe, were old, old Stratocasters and Fender Stratocasters and Gibsons, so Les Pauls and 335s and Firebirds and those sorts of things. They're coveted, they're revered, they're valued now. 
Um, they're considered old school. They're considered the models by which we all base other guitars upon. But back then, that was all we had. Not only did uh, I get the uh, honor and pleasure of playing these old guitars, I developed, of course, an appreciation for them, but I began to uh, realize that buying and selling these guitars was a, a better use of my, uh, I had a better return on my money and my time than I did mowing lawns and painting houses when I was. <laughs> so um, I tried the, the mowing lawns thing and uh, that got eclipsed quickly by selling my first electric guitar. I think the, one of the first deals I did was Gosh, I bought a 1964 Gibson Firebird 3, which is a dot neck thing. It's not the fanciest model. I bought it for $175 out of the Florida Times Union, which I would scan every, I think weekly, the musical instruments section came out. And it was every, there was no internet at that point. You just had to thumb through the newspaper to look under the musical instruments to see what new it appeared. And there it is, 1964 Gibson Firebird. Now this is just one of many stories, 175 bucks. I always had the cash laying around because I was an industrious little kid and ready for the next guitar. Every week I would buy one. This is just one week of, of a year of my dealings. Slide the timeline up a couple of years. I, I would later be at the University of Georgia and I sold it to the rock band Hart for 500 bucks and I just thought I was killing it. Look at that return. $175 investment. Now that guitar right now is probably worth about maybe 20,000 bucks or something like that on today's market. Maybe a little less. There were other stories. Up until recently, some of these stories would be put into my personal category of regrets, the ones that I sold. But you know, you keep the ones that really make you play a certain way. And that's what I love about vintage guitars or any guitar for that matter. If you go into a music store and you pick up a guitar and you have your mind set on a certain guitar or a certain color, that's the wrong way to do it. You go in and the way, the way to buy a guitar is to go in and you pick it up, does it feel right? Close your eyes, forget about the color, forget about the, the vintage of it, all of that, just for a second. Does it fit your body right? Does it start to play you? You don't play a guitar. A guitar plays you. That's my theory. And it will make you do things. Even if you're on a beginning level, it'll gift you with a certain comfort that you didn't have before you picked it up. And that's true. It doesn't matter if it's a half a million dollar guitar or if it's a, uh, a $500 guitar. They're, they're, they're all the same in that sense. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I learned, took me years to learn, that just because a guitar is old and vintage and sitting in a store, that doesn't mean that it's special. Usually the ones that are nice and pristine and new old stock, they say, they're nice and shiny and look like they've just never been played, those, they don't have what we call the mojo, you know? And there's something about, uh, being broken in, you know, that sort of baseball glove effect is what I call it. If it's been played in those honky-tonks and those bars and it's got the, it's, it's got the road scars of, of a guy's hand being put in the same place and he's worn out that wood and worn out that plastic on the pick guard, you know this guitar is broken in like an old glove. Sometimes the ones that are nice and pretty and 
perfect looking, whereas they may fetch a good amount of money in the in the in the in the used guitar market. They're there, they're circulating in the used guitar market for a reason, because they're tight. They're tight and they're never going to be loose. You know what they're good for? They're as good for impressing people and being pretty on your wall. That's about it. But as far as playing them on a gig, they're just too tight. So, you know, there's a lot of myths about this, but the array that I have in my shop today in, in St. Louis is particularly good for explaining my whole story. Right now I'm staring at four guitars. <laughs> and this really, really takes the whole spectrum now. I mean, I've got, I've got over to the left of the guitar rack is a cheap, I don't know, made two or three years ago in Mexico, what we call a Fender Squire. And this thing is probably maybe worth 150 bucks at that much. A fellow bought this and he said, Walt, I want you to just do your thing with this. You know, he's, he, knew, he knows what I do with guitars. And I said, okay, all right, take a good look at this guitar because when you, when you get it again in about a year, it's not going to look anything like this. So I'll have my way with it and I'll explain that in just a second. Right next to that is a 1966 uh, Fender Jazz Bass. And this is an extremely rare, very lightweight jazz bass. And it looks like it's been dropped off a building. It's got scars all over it. It originally was black. And the reason why this guitar is so rare and so valuable is because it has a black headstock. The headstock is in the pink color that matches the body. And a mat what matching headstocks were, uh, something they, they didn't do. There was a little trouble to, to make those. And uh, the labor involved in that upped the value of it and still ups the values. They're very rare. And this one was owned by a buddy of mine who was a soldier in the Vietnam War. I'm the second owner of this guitar. And he nicely sold this to me because I coveted this guitar since I used to hire him to play weddings with me when I lived in Jacksonville, Florida. And we would be all in our tuxedos playing at these posh country clubs and I would have a shiny guitar and my friend would walk up with this one. Now he was, again, he was a young soldier in Vietnam and he, uh, when he was uh, finished with his, uh, one of the first tour of duties, he came back to uh, to Alexandria, Virginia. There must have been a base over there. And he bought it in a music store in, in uh, Washington, D.C. And he held on to it the whole time. So to be able to purchase a first owner vintage guitar is a real special thing. And I've held on to this guitar. But this thing looks like it's been dropped out of an airplane about four times. It has what we call a relicking to it. But it's a real relicking. People pay for a kind of a simulated relicking nowadays because they want those battle scars on it and they want it now. They want to buy something new that looks like battle scars. We don't have the patience to sit and play all these wounds into a guitar anymore. We just want to buy them as if they've been played. There's some sort of satisfaction we get from buying a new guitar that's been relicked because there's always this question of, did you play it and put those scars on it? Or there's always that mystery there. Who put those scars on it? But anyway, this is a cherished jazz bass, 1966. I keep that one down in my shop because sometimes 
I like to remind myself of what great mojo is on a guitar. When I'm taking a new guitar and trying to put it back together again the way I like them put together, uh, I refer back to this one. It's, it's my, uh, my measure. Now this one here is, is one I call, <laughs> you hear that? It kind of sounds hollow and it is. This is what I call roadkill. And I cherish this guitar. And what's really interesting is that this is the cheapest guitar that I own, but it's the best sounding guitar. Now talk about ironies there. I own guitars that are worth around a hundred grand right now, but they don't sound as good as this one. And I, I can't really explain it other than that. I took everything off this guitar, including the finish that I don't really need. So when I first got this guitar, it, it was advertised as just, um, just the parts. And that didn't scare me at all because I know how to put these things together and I have, I have some of the old parts laying around. This is a 1967 Guild Starfire. When I first got this guitar, I was in a recording session and I had this shipped directly to me <laughs> in St. Augustine, Florida at Retrophonics. And so I got it in a box and in a plastic bag were all the parts. So all I needed was one pickup. I threw that one pickup in and I screwed it in and the necessary electronics to control that one pickup were kind of dangling off the pickup. They weren't even put through any of the holes in the guitar. So picture just the pickups in the guitar, the strings are on it, and all the electronics are dangling outside of it. The guts were hanging outside of it. So that's why I call it roadkill. <laughs> and people now, I'll be playing in Iowa or something in a corn carnival and people who follow my music, when I pick this thing up, they'll people will go, roadkill! Because <laughs> this has become kind of a little bit of a signature for me. Recently, I found another roadkill. When a guitar is just miserably so far away from being playable, we call it a project. And so this, uh, this was roadkill number two that I found in, in Brooklyn. And it was uh, I bought as a project and I have all the parts. I have lots, tons of spare parts. When I'm traveling around, I'll buy spare parts whenever, because I know I'll come upon these bodies in these projects. And sooner or later, the parts will be put to use. So roadkill is, is something that I just cherish. I can't wait to get it out on the road on the next tour because I'm always tweaking roadkill to make, make it uh, sound a little better. So from roadkill, from a $500 guitar, I want to move over here and pick up the holy grail of, of all Fender guitars. And this is one that I've had for quite a while. This is the catalyst for an interesting story. I went from a 1967 $500 guitar to what I'm holding my hand here. You'll hear that, it's a solid body, one solid piece of wood. This is a 1954 Fender Stratocaster. This is the first year that they made them. It is very, very rare in the old days to find a guitar that was made with one solid piece of wood. And this is serial number 794. There have been probably hundreds of thousands of Fender Stratocasters made, but I have number 794. and. I bought this from an old friend of mine whom I used to sell vintage guitars. Now, I'm gonna, can I tell you the story of, of, of how I reconnected with this friend? 
Now, my friend sadly has passed away from cancer. And right before he died, he sold me this guitar. But let me back up. I was playing with my group Swamp Cabbage down in Gainesville, Florida. My buddy's name was Joseph, and Joseph had promoted me in Gainesville, presented me in Gainesville a couple of times solo. And he didn't like my band Swamp Cabbage too much. Joseph was a, was a Richie Havens fan. He liked the folk side of me. And I think you do too, Nava. You kind of like that acoustic stuff that I do. You feature that as the, the intro for the show and all that. But I also, every now and then, I just get restless and I want to dust off the electric guitars like Roadkill and go out. But this night in Gainesville, Joseph was presenting Swamp Cabbage. And for some reason, I can't remember, we couldn't get into the club to load in. So Joseph said, yeah, let's go across the street and have a glass of wine. And we were sitting and talking and we were talking about our love for old guitars. I knew that Joseph had this old guitar for years and he would let me play it on the gigs. And I said, Joseph, what else do you have? And we, we, we started exchanging our stories of the ones we let go, the ones that got away. And I told him about an old 1953 Fender Telecaster Blackguard that I sold for for 400 bucks after having bought it for $200. And I thought, I'm killing it. And I, you know, I held on to it for a couple of months long enough to determine that, you know, maybe I needed to make a little money. And, you know, I was, I was a kid at that point. And, you know, to this day, that was my worst story of the one that got away. So we would volley these stories back and forth. Well, that guitar that I sold for $400 is now worth about $40,000. So in 1975, 76, you could have bought a Fender Blackguard Telecaster 53 for $400. Now in almost 2023, um, uh, 50 years later, it has gone up uh, to about $40,000. So that's a pretty good climb. So we traded these stories of the ones that got away back and forth. I said, Joseph, you know another one that really killed me? I said, I, I sold this 1958 Fender Esquire to, uh, to some hippie in Gainesville who drove down from Gainesville, drove up to Jacksonville where I was living as a kid. He said, how much did you sell it for? I said, I think maybe 350 bucks. Yeah, but I paid 175 for it. And I said, yeah, I said, said the hippie from Gainesville got a good deal. He looked me in the eye and leaned into me. He said, Walter, I was that hippie. <laughs> he said he was the hippie. And at that point, it was a combination of anger and goosebumps. You know, it was just like, it was just, it was like synchronicity and all things meant to be. And I had known this guy for five years. He had been producing me and presenting me in Gainesville. It never occurred to me because so much time had passed. The last I dealt with him in this way was when I was a kid at 16 years old. And now we were kind of old men. And, and he had told me that he bought my guitar and we just realized who we were. And what had happened is during, when, during my days as a kid, I would call him up and I would find these old guitars in the Jacksonville, Florida Times Union and I would call him up he would buy them from me and then sell them up north. He was from Syracuse, New York, living in Gainesville, and he had this connection up north. You know, just by shipping something up north, it doubles its value. So we were trading these stories. But anyway, 
So fortunately, our bond increased and we just loved each other in terms of our respect for guitars, in terms of our respect for music. And I was so grateful that he presented me in Gainesville, Florida so many times. And when he passed away, right before he passed away, he agreed to sell this to me and, and gave me a good deal for it. And, but he said, Walt, I want you to do meaningful work on this guitar. I could sell this to some Japanese investors and probably get twice the money. If you'll do meaningful work on this guitar, meaning songwriting and touring, and he wanted it used. He did not want this to sit behind glass as a showpiece. He wanted this to be played. And a couple of years later, after his passing, once I solidly owned this guitar, I sat down in my buddy Stan Lynch's house. Stan was the first drummer in Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, played on all Tom's hits. And Stan and I had talked about writing a song together, and I was in Stan's studio out near Gainesville, and I just said, well, Stan, let's write a song. Let's get to work. Stan was like, what you got? And I didn't have this. It just came to me right then there at that moment. And I was down in Florida, and you might be able to hear this a little bit. Or can I just play the riff? Can I plug it in and play plug the it riff? Plug it in. Go ahead yeah. and plug it in. So, so, so Walter is, is in the middle of his story. He's going to make a shift, going to sit down on the stool, and he's going to plug this guitar in, and we're going to get to hear what he played in Gainesville, Florida. And it kind of just went just like this. I'll see here. Let's see, that's probably a little too loud. Three. It started with a little riff, and I was sitting in Stan's uh, studio, and he said, what you got? And I just, you know, said, well, I don't know, I've kind of been feeling this little thing, you know? Stan said, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. He said, that, that, that's, that's a hit riff. We, we need to work on that. So I said, all right, well, just give me a little time. And I, I came up with uh, the whole intro riff to it. I batted around some lyrical ideas, and then we just worked the whole day on that song until we got the song called Shoulder It. And uh, it's on my, my brand new CD called Walter Parks and uh, the Unlawful Assembly. I like to kind of think that, that Joseph, who sold me the guitar, helped me to write that. And what was so interesting about it is I had, I had this guitar for a couple of years after Joseph directed. And I went to New York and, you know, I played it and I loved it. But nothing really came to me until I came back to Gainesville, Florida, where I bought the guitar from, which is where Joseph was when he sold it to me. And then this song just came out a couple of miles from where 
I bought the guitar. It did give me the feeling that the guy who sold it to me and gave me that directive kind of helped write it. The old ones, if you can get one that's worn in like this, if you look at the, the fingerboard on this guitar, it looks like somebody's just been sweating and, and pushing and pulling those strings and digging into the maple wood and the oils from the guitar player's skin has just permanently stained it. And you would not want to re-sand this neck. The funny thing is, you asked me um, a couple of days ago, Navish, about car collecting and vintage car collecting. And there is some similarity between vintage guitar collectors from vintage car collectors. And, and I was thinking about that since this, you said that to me in my kitchen the other day. There's one thing that's really different about vintage guitar collectors from vintage car collectors is that in the vintage car realm, it's okay to refinish, to repaint a car. You kind of almost want it. If a 1967 Mustang has got a... Uh, a cool purple finish and everybody knows darn well it didn't come from the factory like that, it's okay. It's so rare, it's impossibly rare to find uh, a car that was in showroom condition. It's possible, but it's rare. And it doesn't seem to affect the value on those. But if you refinish a 1954 Stratocaster, that will affect the value. It'll, it'll take about a third of the value off of it. Uh, that is one of those unforgivable sins, but sometimes it has to be done for different reasons. You know, one of the forgivable sins of, uh, of modification in the vintage guitar world is frets. You can refret a guitar and that actually doesn't devalue it. And you have to try to keep the electronics fairly original. Uh, any sort of modification to the electronics is considered a, a demerit, so to speak, but Sometimes the components just die and you have to replace them. So anyway, I'm so happy that you've asked me to talk about these vintage guitars. It is a very important part of my touring process to take them out and give them continued life. I don't want these things to go unplayed. And you know what's really funny, and I've never been able to explain this really. If I go away on tour or travel for a while and I don't pick up one of these guitars for two or three months when I go to the case and pick it up after a while it is stiff it takes about a day to get them to kind of break back in again it's a strange phenomenon I've never been able to figure out why that is but maybe it's not the guitars maybe it's me maybe it's me that has to get used to their their peculiarities and this is what I find so interesting about guitars and the comparison to people. When you say sometimes, well, that person just didn't gel with me. Sometimes you just need to, to give a little chance. You need to give a little time to be with that person and then begin to understand them. And once you understand them, you go, okay, well, I get them. And so I think maybe that's what it is with guitars, old guitars, you have to get them and you have to sit with them for a while. Your, ha your hand has to acclimate because the relationships are all different. The difference between a 1954 Stratocaster and a 1953 ES-175, uh, uh, one of which I have, is extreme. So if I'm going on stage between a Strat and a ES-175, it's, it's a little awkward. And that's just like if you're a dancer and you're doing waltzing, for instance, 
and you're dancing with somebody who's exactly your size, and then all of a sudden your next waltz partner is somebody twice your size. It's not the same, but you know, you can have a wonderful dance experience with either one of them. You just have to take a little time and get used to their moves and their peculiarities. It's the same with guitars. And um, what I like to do in my shop, first of all, I don't work on vintage guitars. I never repair vintage guitars. There's people I send them to. If my guitar needs refretting or something like that, I will send it to people who've been doing this a lot longer. In spite of the fact that I'm a seasoned guitar player, and I pridefully say that I'm very good at it, I don't have the confidence and the years of experience to work on these holy grail guitars, these extremely valuable ones. I send my Strat to a guy in Baton Rouge that I trust, and he is, I would trust him with any vintage guitar from a 1958 Les Paul to a 53 Blackguard Fender Telecaster. And his name is Holger Notzel, German guy, he lives down in Baton Rouge, and he's just, I mean, he, he's not afraid to work on these things. He does it all the time. Every day he's working on a vintage guitar. You know, Nave, for 10 years I toured with Richie Havens. You knew Richie and you would come to see us at various places all over the world. I remember meeting you one time in Paris. You came backstage, you and me and Richie hung out. And so we never knew when Nave was gonna turn up. When I was with Richie as his side man, traveling around with my Red Gibson 1953 175, which I went all over the world with. I went from Australia to Paris, France with that thing. When Richie retired and subsequently passed away, it was a continental shelf for me, man. You know, in the music business, there's no cash in my IRA now and get my pension. There's no such a thing. It's a continental shelf. People said, thank you for your time and your services, if that. And, and you're left to figure out what's next. And that's just the way it is. And I kept all my, happily kept all of my eggs in Richie's basket for 10 years because that was the only way to keep the gig. Because <laughs> I was living in the New York City area and if I, if I missed one or two gigs, man, there's somebody quickly to take my place. You can be completely fit and alive and healthy and you still got buzzards flying above you, you know, and the buzzards are other guitar players wanting your gig. <laughs> That's the way it is in New York. But we all know each other and we all just kind of kind of keep tabs. Oh, you're playing with Bob Dylan or whatever, you know, I'm with Richie. I kept that gig because I would I would say yes to him for 10 straight years. Well, the problem with that is that you've not functioned in the rest of the market. Nobody knows who you are. So I had to I had to ask myself, well, what am I gonna do next? So I started exploring some of the music that was from the Okefenokee Swamp and the region that I grew up in. And I used to camp out in this, uh, you know, uh, ominous, threatening, formidable swamp. It turns out there was music that used to come from it. I started hitting the road, singing these old hollers and some of the shape notes, singing, doing my versions of it and some re rearranging for a guitar, some of the fiddle and banjo music that was made in Southeast Georgia's Okefenokee Swamp. But I was going out there on the road by myself, man. It was different than traveling with Richie. It was different than traveling with my all the groups I'd had over the years. And I got to the point where I got a little lonely from time to time. There's a wonderful thing about doing everything yourself, but it does get old. And something happened to me after about five years of just hitting the road solo after Richie passed away and got to the point I'd never had before. It's like, I can't play guitar all the time. I don't know if it was boredom or just, 
feeling like I, I wanted to, to broaden myself a little bit. And I started looking back into these Finnish guitars that I was into since I was a teenager. And I started asking myself, what about these vintage guitars makes them great? And then I started developing an interest in trying to make guitars that have those characteristics. Now, I want to be real clear here. I don't care for the relic market or I, I, it, I'm not interested at all in remaking 54 Fender Stratocaster. It's been done. I'm staring right now at one that, that was, it's as great as they're ever gonna be. I don't, I don't wanna remake a Fender Stratocaster. I wanna do my own design of guitars. What I've been doing in the last nine years is I've been experimenting. And it's been a wonderful thing. I will take old guitar necks. Let me move over here and show you some of these guitar necks that I have laying around. Now, now these are, you can hear these, necks that are these are this is an old rosewood a fender rosewood neck this is a solid maple what we call a baseball bat too much that's just solid maple solid chunky big piece of maple and and here <laughs> i found this one check this here that thing is just all it's got pieces buzzing on it and everything the, the tuners are still on it now this is a a cheap neck it was made in, they stamped it and made in 2000, year 2000. <laughs> the concept of dating a neck 2000 is just so funny. Like, I just picture these aliens coming down and saying, oh, when was this one made? Oh, this is 2000. Oh, this is old. This is a vintage. This is a piece of junk. And I, 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 was so, I found this in the trash can out on the street in Jersey City, and I held on to it. This is my lab rat. What I'll do is I'll put this thing out in a, in a hot car in a trunk and I'll get the neck all twisted and warped in every which way. I get it in as bad a shape as I possibly can and I come over to my, my heating machine. Let me see here if I can get this. It's a piece of a, it's a jig that I made out of a piece of aluminum. Can you hear that? It's an aluminum tube that was um, some kind of a, I don't know, I think it was a mobile home part or something. And it's a piece of aluminum square tubing. So I lay the guitar neck on top of the tubing with some spacers to allow me to put tension on it. So I lay that, the guitar neck on the, on the tubing and I have a, a heating belt, a silicon heating belt that I put up in, inside the tubing. So you hear that space in between the... So I, I slide the heating belt up under there and I heat this thing up to about 500 degrees and I put it under tension depending on what direction I have to torque it in. What I've been having fun doing is I, I mess these necks up and I straighten them. I mess them up, I re-straighten them. In other words, I, I get them in their worst case scenario and I bring them back to the best case scenario because necks are the most feared and the, the trickiest part of a guitar to fix. I figured I want to start there. I want to start on the hardest part. And so a buddy of mine had an old uh, K, no, a Harmony, a Harmony bass. And he brought it to me. He said, this thing is, this thing is shot. Just do what you want to with it. It was my first customer job. You know, <laughs> it's my first real repair. 
And, you know, and I said, you know, I'm just doing this for the fun of it. I'm a musician professionally. He said, no, you've been studying this stuff. I, I want you to do this. And so, you know, Nami, I took a look at that bass guitar, and I think it was called an H22. Harm yes, there's the template for it, because I traced it out on the wall. And Harmony H22 bass, I love the size of it. So I traced it out and made a pattern, because I'm going to make a guitar like that someday. I look down the guitar neck, hold the guitar up to my chin like the orchestra players hold a violin, and you look down that neck, straight down the neck, from the bridge all the way down towards the tuners. That's the way I look at a guitar neck. And there was enough of a curve in there. If I had taken an arrow, I could have pulled one of those strings back and shot a deer with that arrow. There was so much curve in, in that neck, I could have shot an arrow with that, just like it was a bow. I put it in my little heat jig like here, but I had to remove the truss rod first because if there's a piece of metal in the neck, you either have to take the tension off or you remove the truss rod. And I found out that the reason that that neck had been curved is because somebody had broke the truss rod. So I pulled the truss rod out, came out completely, and you know, one problem begets another. And I realized that half of the truss rod's up in the guitar, half of it's now in my hand. So <laughs> I had to figure out how to rethread the whole thing. You know what? I want to make an important point here. It was not a nightmare. That's what I'm that's what I'm saying. For some reason, in my workshop, my sense of fear about repairing things has dissolved. And I, I just I'm like, okay, well let's figure this out. You know, we got super glue. I got almost all the tools you could possibly have. Let's we're gonna make a jig for something and repair it. The thing is now I have so many guitars if I sent them off to be repaired every time one broke, I would spend all the money I have on repair guys. So just my own personal financial survival, I had to learn how to start fixing these things myself. So it's been kind of fun. And here's a guitar. Can I, can I show you this other guitar over here? This is a, um, an old Fender body. It's, um, it's a, this is a, this is a solid piece of wood. This, this could be, from the 50s. I'm not I'm not really sure because it's a solid body. It's a Telecaster, but somebody had repainted it some god-awful yellow or something with latex water-based paint, which is, you know, in, in my book, if you're going to paint a guitar with water-based paint, you need to be put on a stake, or at least you should be given a citation for that. Don't, don't paint a guitar with water-based, no, I mean, latex paint. People painted this thing with house paint so it had to go on this one when i started so my experiment on this well let me back up i always tell these things it, it, this is i hadn't prepared to tell these stories let me have a sip of water here Ooh. you know when you're when you're when your father passes away you, you at some point you go through his things half of these tools you see here this this old Dremel tool. Look at these look at these old planers. This is a planer from 1917, something like that. And I got his old ra railroad paints. He was a model railroader. I'm gonna walk over here and get this. Half of these paints are n no longer in the collection. Whoops. Yeah, it's an avalanche, you know. Y'all hear that? That's a box of paints. Model railroad paints. 
And I thought, as a commemorative to my dad, I'm going to paint the top of this guitar with model railroad paint. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a variety of different colors. Do you know the, the artist Mondrian? I don't know if you know Mondrian. He was a, he was a modern artist. You'll see his work in, the, in MoMA in New York or something like that. He used to do squares. And I love squares, and I lo but I love painting with different sizes of squares. They're not all lined up perfectly. So I did this guitar. I call this my guitar Mondrian, my Southern Railroad Mondrian, because my father was a Southern Railroad buff. So what I had to work with was the color palette that the Southern Railroad was painted in. And so I painted the top of this Fender Telecaster. Uh, again, if you're just joining us, please forgive me, but I, I had to refinish this guitar. If you just tune into a show and you hear a guy saying you're refinishing a Fender Telecaster with model airplane paint, people are going to get mad at me. But this thing was awful, and I just thought, I'm just going to experiment. I mean, please forgive me, but I, believe me, it looks a lot better than it did. It had pink house paint on it or something like that, yellow, I can't remember. But anyway, so I, I painted this thing, meticulously took me, this took me about four months to do. And I put this guitar together with one of these necks over here. And I, I put a maple neck on it, and, and I, I played a couple of gigs in New York with it. This guitar sounded terrible. Now, the, the wonderful thing about having vintage guitars around is that you have something to compare to. That's why I keep a 1954 Stratocaster in my workshop or a 1953 Telecaster. If I'm working on a Tele, I want it to sound and feel like the Holy Grail from which it came. If I'm working on a Tele, that's, a, that's my own version of a Tele. That's what I'm saying. I constantly have the master, the best that it can be to compare to the work that I'm doing. So it's a wonderful thing to be able to reference some of the finest examples. So here's where the learning comes in. Why doesn't my guitar sound as good as the original? Well, first of all, it has model airplane paint on it. And, you know, that's a sin right there. But it was an experiment. And then I sanded a lot of the paint off. and I'm, So it's kind of, you can halfway see the paint. I mean, this thing looks like it's been dragged behind a, a truck out in the Texas two-lane or something. And so you can see some of the grain of the wood coming through. But you can see the hints of some of the paint that I put on it. And I left it like that, and I put it back together. It sounded 100% better because a lot of the paint had been sanded off of it. This, this brings up a really good point, and people always ask me. It's like, you've got an electric guitar with plastic that's holding the pickups on. You've got magnets. What difference does one piece of wood make from another piece of wood? And the fact is... These woods all have different densities. The strings are running through the guitar and they're anchored on one side of the guitar, going through the body and going all the way up the neck. So the strings are being held by the guitar. The torque of those strings is being determined because they're being held up against a body. So why wouldn't that body make a difference? Why wouldn't the density of the wood 
make a difference? Why wouldn't the heaviness of the wood? So my, my goal was to make this pitiful body that came to me with pink latex paint have exactly the same dimensions and mass and density as a Fender Stratocaster. So I got the calculations for these great guitars, a 1953 Telecaster or 54 Strat, regarding the density and the mass and the weight. And so everything I make, even if it's my own pattern, still has to fit within those measurements and uh, those specifications. The density has to be very close and the weight has to be very close. And so if I get the electronics to match pretty closely, and there are lots of great electronics makers now who have studied, that's not my realm. I just care about the wood. I buy the electronics from people like Lindy Fraylin and so on in Richmond, Virginia, and he's a master of these things. So with my father's model railroad paint, with a lot of sanding and the right work on the neck, you know, heating it up, making sure that it's going to be as straight as it can be, I turned this into a guitar that sounds extremely comparable, and I'm picky. I don't like anything. I'm proud to say that I have a very discerning ear about these things. This old Fender body with these pickups that were made by Lindy Fralin sounds extremely close to the original 1953 um, Telecaster. So let me show you what I'm going to do with this guitar. If we could step outside just for a second. Now this this guitar is uh, it's a single piece of a body, but I'm curious because. There was a, a, a refinishing attempt that was made on this, and I, I just don't like it very much. So I'm, I'm just going to experiment to see see what the grain looks like when I when I when I start to take a little bit off. I'm going to lightly take a little bit of the finish off of this uh, old latex paint. See how that's beautiful? That's beautiful ash green. And that's, it's kind of rough, rough, um, it's coming off a little, it's a little rough texture right now because I, this is a fairly uh, low grip, but um, this is a, this is a one piece body, old Fender Telecaster that was just in awful, awful shape. But I'm gonna revive it. I'm gonna probably, uh, paint the back of this thing uh, just a an old 50 style see-through blonde or something and uh, but you know I have fun with these things and uh, it's it, it's a wonderful it's a pastime but uh, I, I'm hoping that in, in my older years you know when I retire from playing on the road if I ever do um, God knows I might just die on stage sometime and that'd be just fine with me um, but if there's a point where I get off the road and I just don't want to move around anymore, maybe I can just work in, the guitar, work in my workshop here and design my own guitars. I have my own designs already, but I really, really want to learn as much as I can before I start making 
full, you know, full bodies and putting them together. I, I want to learn about these finishes. I want to learn, learn about the necks um, before I ever hang my shingle out and take money for this. But it's, it's been a wonderful e experiment, educational experience and an experiment learning about the guitars that I've been passionate about all my life. Um, it's kind of a forensic uh, adventure. I'm happy that you've asked me about this today. Um, but uh, what do you think? Well, Walter Parks, I have done over 200 interviews, and I've never done one like this because I did not have to ask you even one question. <laughs> this was sorry. a fabulous, fabulous <laughs> storytelling time, and I really appreciate you doing this and I'm thinking as I'm sitting here listening to you talk I think you know I bet Walter could go on for another six hours no problem no but, uh, <laughs> I, 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 it, it just occurred to me that this was an interview <laughs> not a monologue <laughs> and for me it was an absolute delight to sit here and listen to it because I enjoyed every minute of it and I learned so much about guitars and so much about what really lights your eyes up because yeah. when you were telling this story in this basement this cool basement on a rather hot May day in St. Louis it's above 90 degrees outside yeah, right now yeah. and this basement's around 65 or 70 it's very cool in yeah, the basement. It's nice here. and your eyes were just as bright as they could be like a like the boy who bought his first guitar yeah yeah well it's um Thank you. I'm glad you realized that, and it's. I, I'm kind of happy that at, at my age now, 64, uh, something can can light my eyes like that. I mean, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. My wife always lights those eyes, but uh, second only to her, a, a good old vintage guitar will will uh, put that sparkle in there. Well, Walter Parks, thank you for sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Navi. Always good to be with you. And there you go, my friends. That was Walter Parks in his basement studio telling us all about why he appreciates vintage guitars. I've known Walter for over 20 years. We met in Asheville in the late 90s. We'd heard about each other for some time, and people had said to both Walter and to me, you guys should meet. I'll bet you, you all would have a lot in common. Maybe you should get together and record something. Well, we did indeed get together, and I cooked salmon, had Walter over for dinner. Laura Hope Gill, who lives in Asheville, was with Walter that night. She brought him over, and I believe it, it was Laura who introduced me to Walter officially. Well, as soon as Walter and I sat down and dinner was over, we couldn't stop talking. And we haven't stopped talking, actually, since then. And what I mean by talking is, I mean conversations. Our conversations have ranged from creativity to music to poetry to how to make things, how to build houses, how to put stuff together. We've talked a lot about what it means to be on the, the road all over the world and especially on the American highways. And when Walter and I finished the interview you just listened to, he said, Oh, Nave, I, I, I want to do this again. I'd like to... I'd like to tell everybody about my electronic gear. 
and he looked up on the shelf above his workbench and showed me two little boxes electronic gear he had collected i'd never seen the gear i didn't even know what it was but he was so proud of these two vintage electronic boxes that did something to improve the musical experience you have if you ever go to listen to walter he plugs it in and it makes magic so walter was as fascinated by his two little red boxes above his workbench as he was his fender guitar and the other guitars he talked about so speaking of the american highway after i finished this conversation with walter this wonderful hour-long discourse walter gave us on on his his love for music and guitars I spent the rest of the afternoon editing this sound file upstairs in his dining room area. And we had a lovely dinner and I went to bed and the next morning, which was yesterday, I woke up, packed my gear, Walt got up 6 a.m., made a little bit of coffee for me for the road and we walked out to the car. I loaded my gear and started driving east for Asheville, North Carolina, St. Louis to Asheville, 600 miles. And I knocked the thing out in, in one day, sort of that was the, that's the road code. Walter's done that many times and so have I. I'm looking forward to having Walter come out later in June to visit me in Taos, New Mexico, which is where I'll be after I return from Asheville and the LEAF retreat, which I'm attending this weekend. The Leaf Creativity Retreat, really. We gather at Camp Rockmont and do some writing. Allegra Houston and I will be there, and we will be working with our concept, the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. I call it a project. It could be named many different things, from the imaginative storm to the creative form. And that's what Walter was doing when he was sanding the back of that Fender guitar. He was working on his creative form and the dust was flying and the birds outside were singing and, and we were having a, a very, very happy time. So when I rolled out for the Great American Drive from St. Louis through Nashville to Asheville, North Carolina, I found dawn rising. Gas was high, 479 in Illinois. It dropped down to 449 in Tennessee and I filled up my tank and noticed the price and kept on going. So I arrived in Asheville yesterday afternoon, six o'clock and went to a little place called Earth Fair and got myself um, supper, salad and a little bit of fish, sat down, ate the salad and the fish and then came on over to Devine Dial's house. Devine is the woman who owns WPVM-FM. She and Herb acquired WPVM-FM and she's gracious enough to give me a room to stay when I come here in Asheville. Thank you, Devine Dial. Which brings me around to the end of our show. So I'd like to say thank you ever so much for listening to Walter Parks. And if you'd like to know more about Walter Parks, WalterParks.com. And as I've said many times, Walter Parks provides the theme song, which is playing right now underneath my voice. So thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio 
fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Once again, thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song and our, our great learning around vintage guitar WalterParks.com if you'd like to know more about what Walter's up to. Once again, Davine Dial, thanks for letting me stay here when I come to Asheville. And also, thanks ever so much for managing WPVMF, and we couldn't do it without you. If you would like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. JamesNave.com is also my website. And every Saturday morning, Allegra Houston and I gather on Zoom to do the Imaginative Storm Rider Training, the Imaginative Storm Riding Prompt of the Week. We would love it if you would join us. The door is always open. It's fantastic every week. ImaginativeStorm.com if you'd like to learn more about that. And so I would like to say thank you once again for tuning in, learning all about vintage guitars, and being part of this show. I couldn't do it without you. So thanks again ever so much. And until next time, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.